So true. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when things are going perfect and when things are as bad as they possibly could be and anything in between, blessed be the name of the Lord. I love how we are putting the scriptures on the same screens as the lyrics that we're singing because it keeps things in context, that these are not abstract principles that we are pulling out of thin air, but we are singing lyrics that are well-founded, well-grounded in the Word of God for the glory of God. Amen? That's what we're doing. That's great, great stuff. And plus, that song will be in your head all afternoon, and that's good. Blessed be the name. All right. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 20 through 26 is where we'll be today. We have been in a series now. This is the third week in this nine-week series called Saved. And we came to this title, uh, albeit simple and albeit this sort of thoroughly churchy word, Saved. Uh, We came to it, though, because we wanted you, by the end of this series, to have a much larger understanding of what it is to be saved. To this point, we have seen that that salvation is the work of God, that, that God is the one who regenerates, that we are dead in our sin, that we are spiritually dead. Dead people don't wave at their funeral, nor do dead people come to God on their own. And God is the one who breathes new life into the person. And He is the one who causes someone to be born again. Remember the passage, the wind blows wherever it wants to go. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. It just does it. So it is with God. So we looked at regeneration. And then last week we looked at conversion. That the response to God making you alive spiritually is that you would turn away from your sin and you would turn by faith to Christ alone to save you. And that's the only response that makes sense. And that is of your own will after being made alive that you would, you would turn. You have to turn from sin to Christ. You can't simply turn to Christ while holding on to your sin. You have to turn away from your sin simultaneously as you turn to Christ alone. And today we come to the next part. We come to this issue of then what is God's response to our faith? What is God's response to our turning from sin and turning to trust Him in faith? And that's where we come to this subject today, justification. Let's read this passage together and then we'll begin. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that as we come to one of the greatest passages in your book to us, God, I pray that you would be the speaker today. 
God, that you would preach through me. And God, that you would call people to yourself, making them alive and that they would turn from their sins and turn to you in faith alone. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is the most important question that anyone could ask? Just think about it for a little bit. What is the most important question in the history of the universe? I did a quick internet research, an internet study. I just typed in most important question in the universe. And it took me to a website devoted to this question. And it gave me the top 25 top questions, most important questions in the history of the universe. Now, I'm hoping that they are intended to be funny. Let me share with you some of what the Internet thinks is the most important question in human history. Number one, what makes number two pencils so special? Number two, is there one move that will more likely win a game of rock, paper, scissors? Number three, which came first? Not the chicken or the egg, the can or the can opener. That's what they think is the most important. Number four, now you've got to think on this one. Can a pregnant woman drive in the carpool lane? Does she qualify? Two or more in the car, okay? Number five, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Number six, I'm not going to give you all 25. This is the last one. Just who did invite sliced bread, invent sliced bread? Who, who made that stuff? I messed it up. I said invite, not invent. Sorry. Those are the top six that the Internet thinks are the most important questions of all time in human history. Obviously, I think they mean them to be funny. I think they, they, uh, this is sort of an attempt to get a laugh. I don't think anyone would really say that the most important question is about number two pencils. So what is the most important question that anyone can ask or has ever asked or will ever ask? I would pose to you that that question today is in this particular text. The question is, how can I be right before God? Because all other questions really fall under that one. Because... You and I are headed toward death. You and I are headed toward eternity. One day, every one of us will stand before our Maker. That's coming to all of us. So the most important question that we could ever ask is, how can I be ready for that? How can I be right for that? Now, some are bothered by the notion of this question. Some don't think that this would be the most important question at all. Some would come to this question and say, why would I have to justify myself? I've done nothing wrong. When they do that, they don't come in an honest fashion. Some would say, well, who in the world or in the universe would I ever have to justify myself to? I am the boss of me. I don't have to justify myself to anyone. And again, when they do that, they come in a dishonest, less than honest way. This, this is the single most important question in human existence. People have been asking this question throughout history. 
You go back to the oldest book on record. The oldest book in the Bible is not Genesis. The oldest book in the Bible is Job. Job asked this question in chapter 9, verse 2, when he said, But how can a man be in the right before God? Job's friend Bildad also says, How then can a man be right before God? You continue to go forward. Those that were listening to John the Baptist who was saying, prepare the way of the Lord. They ask him the question, then what must we do to be ready for his coming? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's the same question worded differently. The Philippian jailer. So Paul and Silas said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the same question. In fact, every religion in human history has come out of that question. And you think about the prevalence of religion in the world throughout human history. There are religions everywhere. There's more than Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness. And there, there's so many more than just those that we know of. You can go anywhere in the world where there is a people group and there will be some system of religion because in the human existence there is this question at the center, what must I do to be right before God? We come into our text this morning in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, gives us at least part of the answer. In Romans 3, verse 20, it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There is debate on how that word law should be translated. In some of your Bibles, you will notice that law there in verse 20 is capitalized. In some of your Bibles, you will notice that it is not. Because there's debate as to whether the author here means that, that by no works of the flesh according to the Mosaic law will one be justified. And some would say, well, then that opens the door that, that the Mosaic law, that the God of uh, Christianity is not right. There are others who would say that the law should be Lowercase. Because it's not speaking of the law of God to Moses, but it's the law of the human heart. It's the conscience. It's, it's what everyone, every human has. I particularly think it's talking about that. Because you go back and you go all the way back to chapter 1 verse 18 in Romans and that's what Paul is doing is he's setting up for us just how sinful we are. Go back to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Let's walk through this very quickly this morning. God, through the Apostle Paul, wants us to see just how unright we are. In 1.18 he says, For the wrath of God is revealed, and rightly so I might add, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verse 21, we have ignored him and refused to honor him and give him thanks. 
We have seen Him clearly from the beginning in verse 20. That from the beginning, from creation, what can be known about God is clear. Yet we have suppressed it. We have ignored Him. We have not given Him thanks. We have not honored Him as God. Instead, in verses 22 and 23, we have made and worshipped idols. We have began to worship things made from our hands in the image of animals and birds and other created things. We've worshipped the creation and not the Creator. In verses 24 through 32, let me just read it for you. This is a list to show us just how thoroughly wicked we are. The intent is not for you to look at it and find your own particular sin. The intent is for you to see yourself in it, though. The intent is for you to see that every person is thoroughly wicked. Starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the condition of humanity. God, through the Apostle Paul, wants us to see it. In an attempt to justify ourselves, in chapter 2, verse 3, we picture ourselves as being better than others, and based on that, God would never send us to hell. We have this idea that as long as I'm not as bad as the guy next door, I'm getting in. We have this idea that as long as my good at the end of my life outweighs my bad, God would never be so cruel as to send me to hell. You never find that in Scripture. In God's revelation of Himself to us as to what He requires of us and what He has done for us, He has never told us that it is up to us. In chapter 2, verse 4, we again attempt to justify ourselves by making God like we want Him to be and assume that He's too kind to punish us. That He's more like the benevolent grandfather in the sky that will one day just sort of look over our sinfulness. And in the end, love will win out. But Scripture tells us that in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, He will render to each one according to His works. Look at verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking 
and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The problem with that is there are none that do good. There are none who are patient in well-doing. We are all self-seeking. In chapter 2 verses 14 through 16, we cannot trust or even live up to our conscience. God has placed the conscience within the human existence and it tells us in some way what is right and what is wrong. But even in that, we can't trust that. We have perverted that. It has become become broken in the fall. And even in what we know is right and wrong outside of the Word of God written on our hearts, we still can't even live up to that. We can't rely or live up to the law, God's revealed law. In fact, it was never meant to save us. All it was meant to do was to show us our need for God. It was to show us how desperately, thoroughly wicked we are. No one, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, no one is right with God and all are accountable to God. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God, through the Apostle Paul, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to 3, verse 20, wants us to see that By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We are doomed. Which brings us back to our original question, the most important question in the history of the universe. How can I then be made right in the eyes of God? How can I get ready for that day? Look at verse 21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. How can we be made right? Three things I want to show you this morning. The answer to this question, because God never left it up to us to answer The most important question in the history of the universe has been answered by God Himself. First of all, how can we be right before God? By grace alone. Verse 21, but now. It's the greatest conjunction ever. This is God intervening. Keep in mind that 
all of this. God intervening is after he has done everything he could to make himself known plainly to his creation. And even after they have rejected him and refused to honor him and worshipped his creation instead of him as the creator, even after that, he intervenes. In verses Verse 22, the first part, it says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Notice it doesn't say the righteousness of man. It's a good thing. It's the righteousness of God. We have nothing to contribute to it. Verse 22 also, it says that it is for all who believe. Notice that that all who believe is followed right up by verse 23, for all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. They don't deserve, all they deserve, all you and I deserve is the wrath of God. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law for all who believe in Jesus Christ. It's available to anyone who will turn from their sin and turn by faith to Christ alone. It is the the grace of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. The very nature of a gift is that it's not earned. You don't earn a gift. Someone hands you a gift bag. You don't then ask for the bill. Chapter 6, verse 23, shows us what we have earned. For the wages or the earnings of sin is death. But the free gift, there it is again, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are not right. We are thoroughly wicked. We, in and of ourselves, cannot stand before God. We will not be right before Him. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's totally the grace of God for all who believe. But the question that comes up out of that is then, what about justice? How is this fair? I mean, I'm thankful for grace and all, but how is this just of God simply to wipe away sins? What about murderers and rapists? And thieves and child molesters. John Enser, in the book that I've recommended to you, the great work of the gospel, says this. He says, aren't some things unforgivable? If righteousness demands that judges never condemn the innocent or acquit the guilty, how can God forgive the guilty? How can he wink at wickedness? Do rapists and murderers sit down in heaven with raped and murdered men, women, and children and say, let's all live in harmony? Is that heaven? Isn't there hell to pay for our sins? And if there is, how can I ever escape it? Will God be more willing to forgive me if I make sincere effort to reform myself? Will it help if I punish myself in certain ways? How can God forgive me for what I've done? I condemn myself. How can God do less? We are 
thoroughly wrong before God. How can we be made right before God? By His grace. But what about justice? How does He do this and remain just? Second thing I want you to see tonight, or this morning, is in Christ alone. By grace alone, in Christ alone. In verse 22, it says, Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24 says. Redemption carries the idea of buying back. It's the, it was commonly used to talk about those who were in slavery and someone would go and buy them back. It carries the idea of remission, forgiveness of sins, canceling the debt that was owed. Well, how does God cancel our debt? The Scripture tells us in 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, you want to just freak the waitress out at the lunch table today, just go to her and say, did you know that God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for you? She will not understand what you're talking about. So propitiation, we have to understand what it means. It was common in ancient religions. The person often tried to appease or move the God who was offended, the angry God, to a position of favor for them. And so what they would do, for instance, going on a sea voyage, going on a fishing trip, they would make some sort of sacrifice to Neptune, hoping that he would become favorable to them so that they would have a safe journey. It was also common in biblical history. Every, every year, the Day of Atonement, the priest would carry the blood of the Lamb in and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Notice in 25 through 26 the difference, though. This is not some person making an attempt to propitiate, turn their God to a position of favor. Notice that it is God who puts forward Christ. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. There there is justice in this God. It is by grace alone, but it is not simply sweeping sins under the rug. The sins will be paid for because God put forward His own Son to take the full punishment. He would become the both just and the justifier. When we could do nothing but wait for the wrath of God, God put forward His Son. Christ stepped forward. And while He agonized in the garden of the wrath that was to come, He prayed, nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will, Father. And he went to the cross and he drank every last drop of the wrath of God that was meant for you and me. That is how God can forgive sins, redeem men and women, 
Because it's not as if he is simply sweeping their sins under the rug and putting murderers and rapists in heaven with murdered and raped. Their sins, your sins, my sins have been atoned for. Not only has God been propitiated, He put forward His own, His own Son. But also, Christ is our expiation. Christ is our expiation. To expiate is to carry away. Christ has not only paid for our sins, but He has carried away our sins. He does this, God does this, in the fact that He imputes to Christ our sin. The word impute is a legal term. It means that He credits it to His account. When He looked at Jesus on the cross, He took every sin and credited it to the account of His Son. But beyond that, it's not that He simply put our sin on His Son. He then took the righteousness of His Son and imputed it to us. He takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it in our account. To where He no longer looks at us and sees us as bankrupt in sin, but He sees us as rich in the righteousness of Christ. On the Day of Atonement, there were two symbols It was the sacrificial lamb I've already hinted at. It was the way of making propitiation. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so they would take that lamb and slaughter that lamb and take the blood of the unblemished lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. But beyond that, there was another symbol. There was the scapegoat. And the priest would bring the other goat, the one who had gotten the better of the two lots in the eyes of humanity. And the priest would take his hands and he would put his hands on the head of this goat and he would confess the sins of the nation. He would confess all the sins of the people of Israel. And then there was a selected runner, a man who was well fit, the Bible says. And he would take that goat and he would run that goat out into the wilderness as far into the wilderness as he possibly could. And he would leave the goat there, never to return to them. It was a picture of the scapegoat carrying the sins away. And Jesus is both our atonement and He is our scapegoat. He has both paid for our sins and He has carried our sins away. Well, does this then mean that everyone is now justified. If the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law for all who believe in Jesus Christ, does that mean everybody? No. The third thing I want you to see this this morning is that God can justify, make you right by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Through faith alone. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. We come to this issue of faith and it is not faith in faith itself. 
I believe that our churches are filled with people who have convinced themselves that they are right before God. Because they have faith in faith. Faith in faith will do nothing for you. You go to your your job this week. You work all week long. You punch in, punch out. It comes to payday. They come, you come to your mailbox. You go and you take the paycheck from your mailbox. They are not paying you for taking the check. They are paying you for what you've done all week long leading to that. Your taking the check is simply the way to receive it. Now this picture breaks down because in this picture, it is us who earns the paycheck. The better picture would be if you were to work all week long. And then at the end of that week, you die. And then your wife comes in. And she comes to your mailbox. And having done nothing to earn that paycheck, reaches out and takes that paycheck out of the mailbox. Faith in faith is idiotic. It is worthless. But faith in the one who accomplished it all is simply the means of reaching out, having done nothing for it, and trusting that he alone has done it all and receiving it by faith. It is not not enough simply to know all the facts about God. It is not enough simply to agree that all those facts are true about God. The Bible says that even the demons believe and shudder. One more step is involved. It is that guttural trust. That He is my salvation. He is my salvation justification. He is my propitiation. He is my expiation. What about you? What are you trusting in to be right before God? Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning I stand before you Totally right. But God, it is not in and of myself that I am right. I am declared legally right, legally justified in the eyes of God. And I am prepared this day to stand before you, not based on any merit of my own, not by works of the law will any human be justified. God, today I stand before you through finished work of Christ alone. God, I would never have come to that on my own. You, you made me alive. You showed yourself to me. Even when I had spurned you and ran from you and rejected you and rebelled, you showed me this way. God, you gave me even the gift of faith. You have allowed me to turn from my sin and 
trust you alone. And God, for that, I have nothing to boast in. My boasting is in you alone. And God, my prayer today is that all over this room, for men and women, all over this room, that they would by faith today turn from their sins and trust in you as their only hope. God, I pray you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.